0: on top. I'm Auntie Vice here. We're today, here today with Mir Green from Wicked Grounds. For those of you who regularly listen to the show, you know everybody who comes on the show talks about Wicked Grounds and talks about Mir. They are kind of the center of the kink community and that I brought on. It's amazing the, the community you've created and they've done so many amazing and cool things. I work with them a lot. I work with Wicked Grounds a lot. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. It's really a a pleasure and an honor, and I love everything you're doing with the show. I've listened to a few episodes now, and just it's such a treat having this discussion in your living room that brings in people all over, so thanks for having me.
0: Excellent, excellent. So I've been debating where to start because there's so many cool things to start. But I I guess I'll start with you've done one thing that so many people I know fantasize about. Um, I know people who've consulted with you about this. How do you leave the corporate world to start a cake cafe and do all of these magical things?
1: You know, it's funny. I I was answering this question the other day and I look back and I think, Oh, Miri, you sweet summer child. Um, Because what ended up happening after many years as a corporate consultant Uh, It was 2012 and the middle of the culture wars as we understood them then, when queer people and sex-positive people and whatnot were getting once again thrown under the bus. Having come up queer during the Reagan administration, i would seen this a few too many times for my taste. And I realized that I wanted to be doing something different. I wanted to create spaces where people can be themselves in all of their parts and i feel like when we do that and we nurture ourselves it gives us the energy and capacity to sort of fight back against larger injustice and create the world that we want to live in um, at the time i was actually working on a separate concept for a dike cafe uh here in san francisco and we were trying to figure out how to work in alliance with Wicked Grounds so that both spaces could thrive. I'm a big fan of uh, co-opetition, right? I do best when there are other thriving pink businesses in this neighborhood, for example. So back then we were working with the previous owner of Wicked Grounds, Ryan Psycho Kitty, who is an, also an amazing being, and trying to figure out how to play nice in the sandbox. And by a weird coincidence, we ran into a snag with our business at the exact same time that Ryan was struggling with Wicked Grounds. And my number one wild idea to save my idea was to acquire Wicked Grounds. And four months later, we did that. So um, my big focus has always been creating that safe space and the interesting thing about the BDSM and queer community is at least here in San Francisco is this huge umbrella for a lot of other subcommunities. no pun intended. So I really wanted to create a space where cross-pollination and dialogue can happen between parts of the community who might not otherwise have the opportunity to sit at a common table and talk to each other. And so I've now had the cafe for eight and a half years, which feels ridiculous and amazing. And that's really what's happened that we have the, the gay leathermen and the littles and the puppies and the um, lifestylers and everybody sort of coming together to create this hybrid culture of sex positivity. And I believe that that really does have a positive impact on the larger world, well beyond us having cool sex lives, which we do. And speaking of having a a large positive impact, one of the things
0: that I found amazing is you kind of spearheaded uh an effort to keep Starbucks from coming into the leather district. <laughs> I think you were the only person in America who's managed to get Starbucks excluded from an area. And I loved it. So do you want to talk a little bit about what happened there? Because that was phenomenal. Well, yeah,
1: and you know, let's not go um, you know, I didn't do that. We did that, right? So Um, We got a flyer on the door that there was a Starbucks trying to move in uh, one block from us, pretty much right across from Mr. S. Leather here in the Leather District. And it would have devastated us. Our margins are razor thin. We are able to make it through by not just being a kink cafe, but also being the go-to neighborhood spot where people can hang out and have a cup of coffee. So Starbucks would have wrecked us um, in about two weeks. And they always do these community input meetings when they're going to go into a neighborhood. And I think what usually happens is they have a few plans, a few people show up, they talk, the Starbucks goes in. Uh, That's not what happened here. So by the time we were a day out from the meeting, I'd been rabble-rousing all over to our customers, and they had already received several dozen letters from all over the country from people saying, you absolutely cannot do this. So the day before the big meeting, um, the head of new locations for this region and the local regional manager from san francisco came in and had a conversation with me and said you know what what do we need to do to make this happen you know we we can put leather flags on the wall no honey no so we had 200 people show up to the community input meeting and they didn't even bother to turn around their little plans for the shop and several people just spoke to how important Wicked Grounds is to them as a community space, a space they can be themselves. And, you know, the, the moment other people always play back to me is when I, I kind of got fist on the table. and It's like, do you, do you even know what a little is? Do you know what aftercare is? Do you understand, like, are you going to be the one giving out condoms? Are you going to be the one helping people negotiate their first scenes? Like, you're not going to do that. Um, and putting leather flags on the wall doesn't change that. It, and it gets back to this kind of misconception, I think, you know, as a side note that people have about the ground, sometimes people think, well, you're a fetish themed cafe. And we're not. Um, in fact, if you, if you just walked in, if you weren't looking carefully, for the cage you can put people in or the people drinking out of dog bowls, you might not quite understand what we're doing at first, but we're very much not a fetish themed cafe. We are a place where people can learn to play safe and connect with community. And that's an entirely different project and one that, sorry, Starbucks, uh, you can hang some floggers on the wall, but that that's not you. And to, to their credit, they were very kind about it, and um, the local regional manor, manager for Starbucks came by the cafe the next day because he wanted to see it, and um, gave me his card and said, if you ever have trouble again, let me know, and they made a promise to never come within three blocks of us, so bless oh, them, wonderful. bless their hearts. Yeah,
0: All of this, I love it, and I, when all of this was happening, all I could think of was for our listeners who are familiar with dice to watch out for. This is like <laughs> taking down buns and noodles for the feminist bookstore. And it was like complete Alison Bechdel fantasy line. It was so fabulous because all the kicking queers come come to the floor to
1: camping over the corporate. I, you know, I I I want to be somebody's ring of keys moment. So that works for me. That works for me just fine. Yeah. yeah. Well and I think you really speak to the importance of it because it's not just a cafe. It's more of
0: a a community meeting spot with really good coffee.
1: Yeah, that that's if we do that, that's what we aim for. And now, you know, we hadn't gone online until the pandemic, um, at which time uh, our events manager, Poppy, who was an amazing force of nature, said, Mir, you're taking our classes online and you're doing it now. Mm-hmm. I, I'd had the infrastructure set up for a year. And I'd been being a perfectionist about it. And Poppy's like, go, do it, jump in. And as terrible as that entire experience was, it forced us to do something which has been a real game changer. And it takes, you know, I grew up in a three spotlight town or stoplight town in Arizona. I came out queer in a town with fewer than 5,000 people with more churches than Circle K's in the middle of the goddamn desert. And it was the the fact that I knew that Society of Janice existed saved my life, right? Mm-hmm. The fact that I could buy a copy of On Our Backs magazine and see Leatherdike kept me focused on becoming who I wanted to be. And now through this miracle of technology, I can literally go to that three-stop light town and have somebody attend our virtual lunch, or have somebody come to a BDSM class, something that I couldn't have dreamed of when I was coming into the local scene. And that that is a huge game changer. Um, and I think we as kinksters, we as queer people... Are reconnected with each other in ways that we're never going back. And that's for the best. And I can speak to that
0: connection because the classes I've taught through the annex and, and, you know, with Wicked Grounds, I've had people from around the world. So, you know, I now have people I regularly correspond with in South Africa, in Singapore, in Copenhagen. Like, it's brought it to the world in a way that you can be in a, a three, stoplight town in the middle of Denmark and still attend a Wicked Grounds class. And I think that's one of the really critical things that has really changed the way we connect as a queer, and sex positive community.
1: Um, Yeah. I mean, two years ago, Folsom Street Fair um, went virtual right in the, the middle of 2020, right when we were at the height of the pandemic. There was no way to do anything in person. And Wicked Grounds did a booth there and Shea Tiziano also did a a twisted Mm -hmm. windows performance booth um, that we helped with the tech on. And for the Wicked Grounds booth, we just had 12 instructors go back to back to back um, doing half hour long snippet classes. And we had one guy come in from, um, it was either Thailand or the Philippines. And he just parked himself in the Wicked Grounds virtual tent for six hours Mm -hmm. and said, I've never been able to connect with this content in my life. I'm just staying here and learning as much as I can while I can. And that's, you know, it's when we give people the permission to be themselves and a taste of what it is to be themselves, they will not settle for less. And that I believe keeps us culturally moving in a better direction. There are constant cycles of regression, culture wars, whatever it is that's going on in the exact moment, but people who have a taste of freedom don't give that up easily, so. I don't know. I'm I rabble rouse. I'm I grew up in the dark Reagan days, and you can take my master beta thon out of my cult dead like
0: You know, you and I come from the, the same era. And so, you know, going through this multiple times, it, you know, and we're now in a fairly dark period politically. This oh, absolutely. It, it, it's kind of a horror show out there. And we've had different folks on the show talking about how they're responding to it. The last five episodes, I've had pure therapists. And they've all said, you know, it's it's incredibly difficult because one, it feels like every week there's new trauma their clients have to deal with and they're going to it at the same time. Um,
1: yeah. And most of
0: them are younger than you and I. So with your perspective, where do you see it right now? What what are you seeing and how are you responding to the political attacks going on right now?
1: I mean, externally, it is as dark as I've ever seen it. Um, You know, and I, I'm not a political scientist. I'm not going to get into diagnosing that. Although I will say um, as a recommendation, the, the intersection of Um, anti-sexism, sex positivity, and where anti-sex tropes fit into this. If you're not reading the blog, We Hunted the Mammoth by Dave Fitrell, you need to be. If you do not think that the intersection of our work is relevant to the larger culture, that's kind of a piece of the puzzle um, that might be relevant to you. But you know, externally, it's as dark as it's ever been. And one of the things that's fascinating to me is how much things have decloaked, right? Mm-hmm. The the dog whistles that used to be there because um, the powers that be at least had some shame are no longer there. And what's happening is becoming more and more overt. And that is... Frankly, terrifying. Um, And the ways that minority representation is oppressing larger and larger groups is quite terrifying. Um, Again, the one thing that's encouraging to me is that we, and I, you know, choose your flag under Freak Nation, right? um we have organized in ways that weren't there in the 90s weren't there in the 80s you know the first pride march had 30 people in new york city so we have a larger culture of people who are not willing to lie down so that's the positive side that's the the potential the other thing that worries me is that Weimar Berlin had an amazing kinky, queer, sex-positive culture in the 1930s. So, having the culture is is not enough. At some point, we've got to be ready to uh, to fight back and to keep our our rights by force if necessary. I mean, here at the grounds during the, uh, during the Trump inauguration, we shut down for the day, but we didn't shut down. We, we participated in the general strike. Um, I only gave out support coffees all day, which I can talk about support coffees in a minute. And um, people would come in there, uh, can I get a drink? No, I can give you a drink. Because we're organizing all day and people came in and did first aid trainings for direct action. Uh, People came in and started preparing for what was going to happen and then a few weeks later when the border shutdowns began, people came here and used it as their first spot for organizing before going out to the airports. If we think of ourselves that way, we think of our political capacity. We can use spaces like this to organize quite quickly. Well, and that
0: would never be done at a Starbucks. I'll just throw that out there.
1: <laughs> no, that that's not going to happen at Starbucks. Right. You know, one of so, my one of my newest baristas came here because, you know, here we have support coffees. We give them out; they're prepaid. Somebody has already mm-hmm. bought them, and we give them to the local unhoused or people who are between paychecks or whoever just needs a a little treat in their life right now. And one of my former baristas came here because the old workplace was giving out um, free coffee to cops, and. Mm-hmm. That didn't feel right in their neighborhood.
0: Yeah. And I love support copies because you started that right around the Trump election, when when Trump was elected in November. That was actually,
1: um, Zane Rose started that. Zane is a former SF uh, leather title holder Mm -hmm. and was sitting in the cafe the day after the election going, we have to do something. You know, can can we at least you know give people something free? And I was like, I don't know how. And my barista Jaxi was sitting right there, and Jaxi and Zane worked out how the program would work and how we could do the accounting for it, and we implemented it the next day. Uh, But it's very—I can't take any credit for it, other than saying if y'all figure it out, we will do it, which. To be honest, is a lot of what I do, right? Mm -hmm. I I connect other people who both have a dream and a vision, and get them make a space for them to do the thing. There's no particular brilliance to that, you know. It's it's literally when you create hospitality and you make a space for discussions to happen, cool stuff happens. So it does,
0: and I've stolen it. Um, I host an event up here at a kombucherie, which is I've been accused of stringing keywords for millennials together because it's a queer comedy show at a Northern California kombuchery once a month. Yeah, um, but we start. I, I took the idea of the both the support tickets that you offer for your classes where people can pay for a ticket for somebody else and the support copies, and we offer them to make it more available to people in the community. And we actually are able to get more people to come to our events because of that. So it has flourished
1: out beyond just what you're doing. So it does have an impact. Good. Yeah. I mean, dating myself a little bit, there was a performance artist um, back when we were young, Laurie Anderson, who, you know, riffing off of William S Burroughs said languages of virus. Mm
0: -hmm. Right.
1: So you know, giving out the support coffee is something that helps one individual, but getting the idea out there that we can create these little small scale, dare I say, communist experiments, that's the cool thing. And I hope people steal it. I that it, it, steal this. Yes.
0: <laughs> yes. Although I did fully give Wicked Grounds the, the credit for the idea, oh, but thank you. Yeah, free advertising. That's fine. As much as I can. So you, we've talked about identities. There's a couple of things I want to touch on. One, do you want to talk a little bit
1: about the development of the Leather Cultural District and what that is? Sure. Yeah. When I was first here at the grounds, I used to say that we were in the heart of the historical Leather District or, you know, what used to be the Leather District um, many years ago there were several vibrant, thriving leather businesses in this area. And there are a few that are still holding on. But, um, you know, the Center for Sex and Culture used to be up the street. Stormy Leather was one of the first leather businesses I ever went to in San Francisco long before I lived here. Um, Mr. S Leather is still here. Leather, et cetera, is right across the corner from us. Several leather bars are in the neighborhood. But Soma has been part of, you know, people are very familiar with the Castro, but we've been part of a thriving leather queer neighborhood for decades. And the Folsom Street Fair has been going for over 40 years, having grown out of that culture. And... Gentrification in San Francisco is very real. Um, SOMA has cheap real estate, so that's where a lot of the the hubs started. And it was actually a group of people that came out of the Stud Collective who were running the Stud Bar, again, RIP, who um, were familiar with some of the other cultural districts being formed in San Francisco to preserve the um, culture of those communities. And the first several meetings happened at the stud. Um, Gail Rubin, who is an amazing historian of leather culture, was in from the ground floor and helped with a lot of that. We had a great deal of support from Supervisor Jane Kim's office. And ultimately, after about three years of working on planning provisional committees bylaws you know just politics right um the 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 basic politics of of creating a basis of organizing toward the city we were able to get the full approval of all nine supervisors on the san francisco board of supervisors and we are now recognized as a living cultural district so in practice, that means a few things. It means that when developers come into this neighborhood, they meet with the cultural district. They become familiar with what we do, um, you know, so we don't have people coming in here that try to shut down Folsom Street Fair or up your alley. Um, it means that um, developers are asked to contribute to the leather cultural district so that we can. Create Uh, eventually have a nonprofit community space and um, otherwise support education and community building in the neighborhood. Uh, We do a second Saturday street fair, which is usually near the Eagle Bar on Eagle Plaza and showcases uh, local queer artisans and artists. It means that we are able to slowly push back against the gentrification of the neighborhood and make spaces for us. And this is one of three explicitly queer districts in San Francisco. There's, again, the Castro. Um, I think they got up and running just slightly after us. And the Tenderloin Transgender District predates us a little bit but we do have these three districts which can advocate with the city for the preservation of queer culture and very San Francisco do it in three kind of really different ways that are culturally specific to our communities. Uh, But I, I think it's a real game changer and it will help us continue to have a dialogue with the other neighborhoods in San Francisco and the citizens of San Francisco to understand who we are, what we do, and why we're valuable. So, and it's kind of fun, like we're right next door to some of Filipinas. So we work with Uh, the Philippine cultural district quite a lot in partnership to benefit the neighborhood. Um, And that, again, it's a cross pollination of our geographic interest is helping us understand and support one another's districts uh, better. So that's cool.
0: It is. And I love the fact that it stayed rooted in the, the leather anti-gentrification push. That was one that was part of the original Folsom street fair, right? It's a pushback. Absolutely. and that was forty years ago, so it's yeah. it's been going gentrification in San Francisco has long been an issue. It's just I think getting worse, or at least more visible. I don't know if it's worse or
1: just it's I, it's more obvious. It's more obvious. I mean the the economic disparities. You know, I, again as the, as a retired statistics nerd, the economic disparity nationwide and here are inarguably at their worst since the 1920s or before, and that never leads to good outcomes. The other quick thing I want to say for those who might be in the Bay Area, when we wrote up the membership um, agreements, I should say in full disclosure, I'm not on the current board of the district. I am a member and I did help write the bylaws, but when we were drawing up the membership requirements, we did so quite broadly so that people who live in the neighborhood can automatically be members of the district. People who own or work in a business in the neighborhood can be part of the district, but also people who identify as queer and or leather and have a cultural tie to the businesses and, and organizations here can apply to be members. So if you live in the East Bay or you live in the Castro, this is still your district. And I really invite people nationwide to look at what we have done. Um, Obviously, the way that politics works in different cities and states varies wildly. The closer we get to the municipal level, the more wildly things change. But I know people are listening to this podcast from all over. And it's interesting to look at what a committed group of people pushing hard can do to drive change. And again, some of the powers that be that would like us to not be who we are have understood this for years. And they're very intentionally running for railroad commissioner and dog catcher. To create blocks of small local power that have been building over the past 30 to 40 years, and there's been a huge commitment to make that happen. We too, should we choose to do so, have the ability to use these mechanisms to create safe, safe spaces. Um, and I'm, I'm blessed to live in San Francisco where. We've greased the wheels on that for many years, but literally anybody anywhere could take those steps.
0: And the political science nerd in me wants to like replay that to all of the poli-sci 101 people of like, this is why local politics is important, right? Absolutely. Yeah. The ability to make change on the national level isn't going to happen if you don't have that base. So you have to start local.
1: Yeah, no. And I, you know, I actually moved here from Austin, Texas. So, you know, I'm very familiar with that feeling of being a vibrant, blue, shiny belt buckle on the Bible belt. Like I, Mm -hmm. I, I'm not, when I advocate for local involvement I'm not doing that from some Pollyanna position of, oh, well, you live in San Francisco. That's easy. Um, you know, I did this in Austin. I did this in Phoenix. Not known as a, a, a liberal bastion of the world. I, one of my first political actions was I was too young to vote. But I was um, old enough to collect signatures for the recall on a very, very racist, homophobic uh-huh. governor that we had when I was coming up. And these are things that we can all do. When I was in Austin, uh, it was a collective of witches who were very, very visible and would literally go to do a pentacle meditation under the rotunda of the Texas state capitol. And we did this every. In week, so that people could see that we were there, and after a while, the guards were just like, "Well, them witches like to meditate," you know. But it was it was visible. It was a way of saying we're we're here, we're queer, we're in your face, and that does mean something.
0: It's incredibly important,
1: and people, you
0: know, I've seen these not so much in the last year, but you know, a couple of years ago, these pieces about well do we really need pride or you know have we reached a point of we're out and all I can think of is what type of little happy bubble do you live in? I grew right. up in southeast Idaho on a farm. Like right. visibility is incredibly important. You know, if you're a baby queer you need something to hold on to, especially if you're in these podunk town.
1: I was terrified. My first pride in Phoenix I was absolutely terrified. My first time going into a gay bookstore was, um, was a different drummer in Laguna beach, California. I was 18 or 19 years old. I was scared. Right. I I understand the people who, who walk into wicked grounds and they look like a deer in the headlights. I've been that person. And it's, it's really, it's scary. And it's necessary to build solidarity. You know, I remember uh, Artemis Books in Tucson, and I think that might've been like, I had to look behind something, that might've been where I found my first copy of On Our Backs, which was a sex-positive lesbian publication from what I think of as the Lesbian Sex Wars of the early 1990s.
0: Which just and celebrated a 40-year not- anniversary, by the way. Susie Bright was putting out a bunch of stuff on it because it's been around that long.
1: Well, yeah. Well, and, you know, uh, Susie Bright in particular, like one of the biggest first political actions I remember was her taking an anti-pornography report, the Mies report that had just been released by the Reagan administration and having a huge performance art piece where she masturbated to it. And I was like, oh, that's, you know, sometimes that is how we fight back. We Mm -hmm. we squick them to death, right? It's really hard to, you know, if we signal to each other that we are still here, it is much harder to become isolated. And the isolation is what allows us to roll over and let the powers that be dictate our lives. Silence equals death you thought you were tuning in for like this super i was going to talk about kinky shit you're like i'm going i'm tuning in to mirror from wicked grounds i'm going to get kinky stuff i'm going to learn how to like smash somebody's balls and then what the fuck uncle Mirror just talks about politics for an hour what the
0: hell okay. it's a version of smashing the patriarchy that's that's all no. i can say
1: I am uh, smashing the patriarchy is probably my favorite kink. It's way up there. But, you know, people who have taken my classes aren't going to be real surprised by this, right? Like my teaching is all at the intersection of our kink identities and our power, Mm -hmm. right? And I've been a a magic witchy woo-woo teacher for longer than I've been a kink teacher. And what I teach doesn't look explicitly woo But, you know, I just did two days ago, my diving deep class, which Mm -hmm. is really all about self-awareness and self-empowerment. And it Mm -hmm. happens to be in service of figuring out what you want to do in a kinky way. Um, But I think that over and over again, what I'm most interested in is us Mm -hmm. developing an iron core Mm -hmm. from which to act. And particularly, like, if you're a submissive. I was joking, like bad dom. You, this is my classes are kryptonite for bad doms, but that process of self awareness, that process of like I've connected with my sexual life force, and that's not going anywhere. And when I've got that running, I can do anything. That extends to a lot of things, and suddenly we've become very powerful in the world at large. So it, it is all connected. Pride, you know, pride is not a party, it's a process. And it's a process of becoming so literally shameless that you can get out of your own way and be effective in the world. And yeah, do we still need pride? Absolutely. Do we need kinksters at pride? Yes. Do we need People who look like they're straight because they are in a huge bisexual polycule. Yes, we need them. Do we need ace people? Yes. Like, you know, everybody who wonders if you belong at Pride, you probably do. Uh, The people who never wonder if they belong at Pride. eh. Uh, (laughs) But what I saw this year was some of that kind of trivializing of three years ago was gone. You know, the pride here in San Francisco was two days after Roe fell and people were defiantly pissed. There was a kind of, I am defiantly going to be in your face and be fabulous that I haven't seen in a while. That I haven't seen since probably, you know, ACT UP was fighting against the AIDS crisis. I think we all got shaken in a way that reminds us who we are. But, you know, to not be doom and gloom about it, like the fact that we align with one another, there's a reason that we can gay marry now, right? There are reasons that we uh, don't at this moment have sodomy laws on the books. And we just need to, to connect with that and continue to fight for it.
0: One of the things that's become crystal clear the longer I've worked in this is, that you cannot that coming into your own pleasure and embracing who you are sexually is an act of political resistance. Absolutely. You cannot divorce the two because once you discover who you are and you commit to your own bodily autonomy and pleasure and all of that, that's going to extend into your political views. Um, And it has to, it has to keep you safe.
1: it, It absolutely has to. And, you know, I've, I've seen my favorite pleasure activists over the years, you know, the people who were my role models were Annie Sprinkle, Susie Bright, Carol Queen, Midori. And, you know, these are all people who went forward toward this integration of sex and activism. And, you know, they're all still at it. And i one of the things that I see that's also really encouraging is that many of the current generation, um, the Rain to and Kitty Strikers of the world are moving that discussion more and more toward consent and building consent culture. And I think that is a critical next part of the discussion that, As we create radical consent cultures, having our autonomy violated becomes absolutely intolerable. And when we have a radical sense of our bodily autonomy, then that has a a wide variety of implications for how we act in the world and how we protect one another. And so that, that thread of activism remains very strong. It, it, it probably isn't visible to people outside the community, right? And that's fine. You know, people who are interested in the trope of kink may not see that. But I think most people who become active in their local kink scenes very quickly become aware of the need to protect our communities and that ripples all the way out. And frankly, if the only thing you do as an individual is to create a better consent culture and create healthier munches and organizations, if that's all you do, you have done something amazing. It's, again, like the idea of the support coffees by creating this culture of consent and this culture of co-opetition, we move the world in a better direction and that's that's a process it's not um something that happens overnight i love the fact that in the background you can hear sirens like they're coming for you <laughs> like oh always yeah no i'm I'm, that I'm, right, I'm right at eighth and Folsom in in san francisco and it's um it's a spicy area. Right the intersection? Okay for the ground. Can so you talk about being visible and creating community? You had
0: an interesting Facebook post about a year ago. And we you, you talked about identifying as non-binary, and you've never been really explicit about which pronouns to go by, she or they, and then switching over to they. And you were in the generation, you know, my generation where we didn't have that option until we were over 40. So You want to talk a little bit about what
1: those pronouns have meant? It's so fascinating. And, you know, I, sometimes I feel like an interloper, like, you know, I'm the, the older gender queer person who's, you know, I, I, the the people who are my cohort in Uh that identity are generally much younger than myself, but it's not new. I mean, um, For those of you who don't know, my degree is in religious studies and Mm archeology. span And some of the earliest texts we have in the world are the hymns to Inanna from ancient Sumer. And so, you know, two to 6,000 years ago, people were writing poetry in praise of transgender people and non-binary people. And Hedwana wrote some amazing poetry that praises, you know, the, the woman warrior who, who has the man's pin placed on her cloak. Um, so th- this stuff isn't new, but our language around it is continually re-evolving. And I I believe it was Carol Queen that many years ago ter- uh, came up with the term gender fuck, right? So it wasn't just I'm being genderqueer, it's I'm being genderqueer and in your fucking face about it in a way that's going to, you know, be really obvious. And what was interesting is that when I was in Austin, I could actually be what would look to most people here like very femme. And it was very clear to everybody around me that I was not in the normal gender box. And I I've known I'm not in the normal gender box for a very long time. My mom, when I was eight years old said, you know, I, I was born just before you could use the ultrasound to know what gender your baby was supposed to be assigned at birth. And I, I was eight. And my mom said, you know, you were supposed to be a boy. We had a boy's name picked out and everything. I was like, Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Click, click, click. Um, So, you know, and I've been, Uh, when I used to date straight guys in my 20s, I was like, well, you don't get to be straight and date me, right? Like you need to accept the fact that you are dealing with a gender queered individual. And when I am having sex, I generally identify as a guy. So if you are going to date me and claim to be straight, it's not going to work. Um, And that, again, that goes back for me, 25 plus years. So these are all things that happen. And it, it just was too hard to try to enforce my pronouns at first. And I went through this phase where if people met me in day-to-day life, I would just go by because I didn't feel like correcting mm-hmm. people. Um, but if you were doing magic with me or having sex with me, and we were in a context where gender mattered, I was going to use uh, he, him pronouns. That actually became, uh, I'm part of a a magical organization that does some gendered rituals. And I am often the highest voice in the room voicing the male parts of those rituals. And at first I was like, well, people are going to look at me funny, but that's me, that's who I am that is how I'm going to be. And when I when I participate with that group, they call me brother. And that's that fits for me. And finally, I realized that I wanted to be more visible and started asking for they them, rather than constantly riding that ride of gender fluidity. But, you know, I still have a good rack. You know, I I'm happy. I always close my online classes by showing off my cleavage to my students. Um, but I, I go by sir, I go by daddy, I go by he, him in that context. And also, that feels too intimate to me for daily life, right? Like, that's a part of my life that is very, that's my sex priesting. And so, you know, my, my staff call me, they, them, because um, boundaries, boundaries are real, but that's, that's kind of been the evolution. And I don't know where that will go in the future. Um, I don't know if that's sort of a a resting point or not, but it's, it's been more or less stable with the exception of what I request from people outside of me for all of my adult life. And I, hope that we can build some awareness around the fact that non-binary identities are not, you know, this isn't a, a trend. This isn't a fad for the, the young people. Older non-binary people exist. You know, I'm, I'm about to be 50 and there is room for us. And hopefully the, the cool non-binary kids will keep making space for people like me in their community.
0: And I think that's so critical because more of us are finding a voice as we get older. I know when I was play, you know, trying to figure out gender in my late teens and early 20s, therapists would suggest I live as a man. And it's like that doesn't fit. Right. It, it fits as poorly as living as a woman fits. But you know, 30 years ago, you were you could be trans, but it had to be within the binary. Yep. There was not, yep, not an option. And People did not know what to do with it for a long time. So for a lot of us, we've had to adapt and figure out how to move through the world with as little friction as possible. So there's plenty of those of us in our 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s who are finally able to start embracing it. And it takes I think it takes longer because we've had so much of our lives where we've had to figure out how to straddle this when there wasn't language for it in our culture.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I want to underscore that, but I'm also going to do a very slight pushback against it, mm-hmm. which is that you know, butch femme made room for people who weren't trans but were trans masculine, um, mm-hmm. so and that identity still exists, although it's it's fairly you know you see it more in people my age or older than than you do with other folks, but. There there was some tolerance and remains some tolerance of a spectrum that, um, you know, the idea that being AFAB meant that you had to go in a femme direction. And of course, you know, um, being femme in queer culture has nothing to do with following heteronormative gender standards. You know, uh, high fems are very, very obviously, visibly queer to yeah. anyone with eyes to see. So there, there's, there is some. There are other ways of talking about gender, but interestingly, mm-hmm. my, I went through a period where I called myself Butch. I didn't know what else to do. My gender queerness doesn't really manifest as that kind of gender exploration. Butch femme is not the the playground in which I play, but I do want to recognize it. And particularly for younger listeners, like this is a a thing that existed and continues to exist. And it creates another way to talk about being what I would call non-binary Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not the individuals involved in it always do. Some do, some don't. Um, but there are there are a lot of ways of exploring this. And um, I, I don't know, we, two days ago at the, the second Saturday booth, we were having a whole discussion about, like, this stuff isn't new. Right. Like, we always think that we're recreating something, but, like, you know, Annie Sprinkle was doing things that are really radical. You know, the body modification folks were doing some things that are, Fakir was doing some things that were really Mm -hmm. radical in the 50s and 60s. The Weimar Berlin scene was extremely radical. So we always think that queer culture is something that's like brand new and bubbling up. And bless us that it feels that way. But um there have been people doing some really, really fucked up kinky shit for a while now. And these discussions are not new.
0: They're not new. And I will say with like the, the Butch Femme and Butch and then you know in in Black Lesbian subculture, you have aggressives. It's growing up in that cult, you know, in, in queer culture and stuff, it never quite fit the same thing as non-binary for me. Yeah, um, same. Right. Because that's that's a lot about gender expression as well as identity. And so I think the ability to be non-binary without having to be androgynous, without having to have your expression match your pronouns, that is new in our culture. Like yes. that,
1: that, that's that's the new part. Um, yeah, you absolutely. Don't, I was I was not prepared to be any Yes. Yeah, uh, I, I, I did. I have Nick Rhodes of Duran Duran. Everything I learned about masculinity, I learned from Nick Rhodes of Duran Duran, which for those of you who are way too young to catch the reference, he was the one that always wore fabulous makeup and had great suits and fabulous hair. Like that was me in high school. It was stealing my dad's blazers, putting on a lot of makeup. My hair looked about like it does now, a little bit punk and uh, probably more hairspray. But I was, I wanted to be a dapper gentleman. And I still kind of do, except for I'm too lazy to be dapper now. And I'm very (laughs) cosplay because I own like five identical black t-shirts and three identical pairs of blue jeans. So if you ever want to cosplay Uncle Mirror, that's how you do it. It, For me, it
0: was Boy George.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Like like I was somewhere between Boy George
1: and... um, uh, Grace can't remember Grace Jones. Grace Jones. God, she's just a force of nature, isn't she? Right, still is. Yeah, she's like seventy nine this year. Amazing, amazing. Remember? Her Williams blood only came out a few years ago, and it's fierce as fuck. Right. Yeah, we need to do um, another entire episode on music, but I I recognize that we're probably coming on time if our readers want to connect with
0: you, if they want to support the cafe, if they want to find a class, if they want to join your Patreon, all the things,
1: where do they go? All the things. For the easiest place to go is wickedgrounds.com. And that will have links to all the other things. You can find both Wicked Grounds and a lot of other really cool community stuff at forbiddentickets.com. And that's a ticketing site that is made for the Kink community by the Kink community, and they're going to be able to give you all of our um, online and offline classes. We literally only exist through the generosity of Wicked Grounds members on Patreon. You cannot search for us on Patreon because we're adult content. So you have to mm-hmm. type in the URL. And you can go to Patreon.com/slash Wicked Grounds. And I really hope that you will do so and and keep in contact with us. Um, The other thing I'm going to ask is while you're on our website at wickedgrounds.com, sign up for our newsletter. I send out about three missives a week with the upcoming roster of classes, things to look out for, shout outs for things like fat girls on top. And um, it's really one of the best ways to stay connected Um, If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, you will be able to find us at Up Your Alley in the end of July, which is the Gay Leather Street Fair locally. Um, The Leather and LGBTQ Cultural District, which I've mentioned before, does a street fair called Second Saturdays, pretty much every, you guessed it, Second Saturday. And we're also uh, excited once a year Livable Cities puts on uh, Soma uh, Sunday Streets, which is part of a set of festivals that they do all over San Francisco to highlight local neighborhoods. Um, They do Soma once a year. And um, they're talking about helping us recreate a little mini Wicked Grounds out on the street. So we're gonna do some little uh, live quickie classes and things like that. Uh, But Wicked Grounds does Let's say between Munch's classes and events, we're doing about 80 events per month, and maybe three quarters of those have some kind of online component. So no matter where you are, if you go to Wicked Grounds, connect with our calendar, you're going to find something that works for you. And no matter how niche you think your kink is, we, we got ya.
0: Thank you so much for being on the show and listeners will have all of those links posted. Do check out Wiki Grounds. They are my favorite. You know, you can find my classes for them on forbidden tickets and through them. And uh, thank you for coming on the show, Mir. It was wonderful to connect.
1: Truly really my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope everybody just has a fantastic and very kinky summer. Mwah!
0: and now a moment of gratitude.
1: Community. I am, I'm so profoundly grateful to the ways that we weave together. And especially as we come back out of the pandemic, I see this whole generation of newer kinksters weaving their way in And getting involved and really taking ownership of being part of the kink community that they want to be in, or the queer community, the trans community like we have a lot of different folks here. But watching people come in, get involved, and pretty much immediately start nurturing others it's really, it's a blessing. And it gives me hope. What I'm saying is I'm grateful for you, dear listener. Dear listener, you can't see me. I'm leaning over to the microphone. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Listen to more things like this. For real, you awesome.
0: at FatChicksOnTop.com